0: Good morning again, everyone. We're so glad you're here with us today. Welcome, Smyrna campus. We love you guys. Glad you're connected there. Everybody that's connecting with us online, whether you're doing it live or watching later on, we're so glad that we have that ability to connect with you there. Thank you for joining us online. We are today continuing a series we've been doing called Breaking Bad Habits. Each week, we've looked at a different habit that can become something simple It takes us away from what. The life God wants us to live, the, the lifestyle He wants us to live to, to bless us and to bless others through us. So we, we've we learned that one of the things about bad habits is it's not enough just to try to get rid of the bad habit. You've got to put something better in its place. Otherwise, it's easy to fall back. It's easy to, to even allow something worse to begin to develop as a habit in our lives if we don't replace that bad habit with something good. And this week, we're looking at a habit that Uh, A lot of people have used the term workaholism as this habit. You've heard of alcoholism, right? You know what that is, Uh, where you abuse alcohol on a regular basis and it causes problems and disruptions in your life. Well, workaholism is the same kind of thing, but with work. In the clip you just saw, uh, the character, the dad, uh, he's divorced and he's got the son only at certain times and He's really covered up with work all the time. He's allowed work to take over more of his life than he should. In fact, the gift that he has for his son there on his birthday, he didn't buy it. He didn't even know what it was either. He had an administrative assistant buy a gift for him. And so he couldn't really tell the son what it was before he opened it. He was just as surprised as the son was what was in the box. And then he didn't have time to play with them, even though he got him something to play with. Now, I know we all need to work hard. The scripture is clear on that. In fact, it says, whatever you work at, do it with all your heart like you're working for the Lord. You should be a hard worker. All of us scripturally should be hard workers as Christ followers. That's one of the ways we can set a good example is by being a good worker, a strong worker, a hard worker. But there's a difference between being a hard worker and being a workaholic. Uh, That's when it gets out of balance. That's when it starts taking over more of your life than it should. That's where it causes you to neglect the things that should be high priorities in your life and are just as scriptural as working hard. So the key is to find that balance that God wants us to have. Now, the scripture says, don't be lazy. It says to work hard, but it also teaches us some important ways to balance that out in life. I I want to share with you something I read a long, long time ago, and I want to give a disclaimer for it, okay? First of all, I didn't write it. Secondly, if you happen to work for the government and you're here today or listening online, I didn't write it. So you don't have to email me or defend yourself or your job to me if you work for the government. we got a lot of good people that work hard for the government. I know that. But you know the joke and the stereotype is, you know, government work is not always that good. Now they say the same thing about pastors, right? So I can joke about this because they say, well, you're a pastor. You only work one day a week, right? So uh, it's a pretty cushy job being a pastor. So I know how this goes. You know, people joke about different jobs, but here, here's how it goes. Okay. that's a, it's an older thing. The, the figures may be a little bit out of date, but here's the way it was written. It says, I figured out why I'm so tired. For a couple of years I've been blaming it on iron poor blood or lack of vitamins or a poor diet and a dozen other maladies. But now i found out the real reason. I'm tired because I'm overworked. Here's, here's what I mean. The population of this country is 237 million. 104 million are retired. That leaves 133 million to do the work. There are 85 million in school, which leaves 48 million to do the work. Of this, there are 29 million employed by the federal government. That leaves 19 million to do the work. (laughs) (laughs) Four million are in the armed forces, which leaves 15 million to do the work. Take from the total uh, of 14 million, 800,000 people who work for the state and city governments, and that leaves 200,000 to do the work. There are 188,000 in hospitals, so that leaves 12,000 to do the work. There are 11,999 people in prison, and that leaves just one person to do the work, and that's me, and I'm tired. (laughs) If you are a hard worker, sometimes you feel like you're the only one, right? You're you're having to do everything. You're taking care of everything, and it all falls on you. And if you don't do it, it's not going to get done, and you can allow the work-life balance to really get off track. And it starts hurting you in other areas of your life besides just your work life. Now, we know that's not God's plan, and God has a design. He's the creator of life. He created us in his image, and he gives us from the very beginning of time, from the very beginning of Scripture, he gives us this balance, this rhythm to life that he sets the example on. Let's look at Genesis chapter 2. you got your Bibles open up there. Genesis 2. In Genesis 1, we have the account of creation, right? Day 1, He's created this. Day 2, day 3, right? Six days, God created. And then when you pick up in chapter 2, it says this, By the seventh day, God had finished the work He had been doing. So on the seventh day, He did what? He rested from all His work. Then God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it, He rested from all the work of creating that He had done. So, okay. Okay. That's what God did. God set that example. We're created in the image of God, right? We want to honor God, represent God well in the world. And that's what God did. But it's more than that in Scripture. Later on, when you look at uh, His law being given in Exodus chapter 20, beginning with verse 8, we find a part of the law where God builds into the instructions He's giving His people for how to live life, You know, here are the things I don't want you to be doing. Here are the things that are healthy for you and will bless you. Here are the things that are sinful and will hurt you and will hurt others. Don't do that. He's giving us the law, which is the guideline for life. And in the law, he has built in this rhythm of how rest should be involved. Look at verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that's in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now that's the old covenant. I understand that. That's the law that he gave to his people Israel. But he's setting here a, a pattern, a rhythm of life. And in that rhythm of life, he's not saying don't be a hard worker. In fact, he's saying work those other days, like you should be working. But build into that rhythm according to the law of God and the will of God and the example of God, build into that rhythm of life, rest as well. And and we struggle with that, especially, I think, in the American culture. Now, it's changing some, but for a long time in America, You were really praised for working, not just hard, but staying extra, working longer, taking an additional day, right? You're really rewarded for that in our country. And for that and other reasons, it's easy for us to allow ourselves to get the work-life rhythm out of balance here. Where we're not getting the rest built into our lives that God created us to have. I mean, he made us to have rest as well as to work hard the way we need to work hard. This is not an excuse not to work hard, but it does mean that the way God designed us and designed our lives to work is they work at their peak when we work hard, but also build rest in, into that rhythm too. That's when we can be at our peak as human beings. That's how we're created to function is to have hard work, but to also have rest built into those things. So what I'm going to talk about today is four steps we can take. If this is out of balance in your life, or you have a spouse or other people that you love or care about that are struggling with this, maybe you can help them see that these are some steps they can take. To, to get back to that rhythm of life that God designed us to have, it, it, it would maximize life. It would, it would allow you to get more out of life, believe it or not, to put this rhythm in place that God designed you to have. In other words, even when you work, you'll work at a higher capacity if you've also built in what? Rest. The way you need to build in rest. You need to have both of those things built into your rhythm of life. It will also allow you to be the blessing in other areas of your life that God has designed you to be, like with your family and your friends, your church, like God wants you to be, okay? So, let's look at these four steps that we need to take. The first step, and these are all from Scripture, we're going to look at some verses that go along with each of these. The first step, you have to establish your priorities for your life. You have to decide what your priorities are in life. Uh, Sue Ann was speaking at a a conference and she was going to be talking about uh, having the right priorities in your life. And she had this exercise that she was going to have everybody do at the conference, but she's like me. She wanted to test it out before she spoke at the conference to, you know, to see how it all worked. And, And so she said, let's sit down and let's make a list of what our priorities are in our lives going from top, all right, the most important thing, the next most important thing, right, list them in order of the priorities, how important they are to you in your life. So naturally, naturally I, uh, being a pastor, I know what should be number one, right? So when I put number one, God, he's the top priority. Now that's true for a pastor, but guess who else it's true for? Everybody that's a Christ follower, everybody that believes in God, that should be number one. We're going to look at some verses that talk about that, right? So I I said, well, you know, God's number one, and I'm doing it with my wife. What do you think I put number two? (laughs) My marriage, right? That's number two priority is my marriage. And that is, according to Scripture, the right order. God first, and then what? my marriage. But my marriage is also above what? Everything else. My marriage is a higher priority than everything else but God. That's scriptural. We'll look at some verses that talk about this. Okay? All right. So, I said God, marriage, and then the rest of the family, right? The kids. And then you could go on with, you know, other family, extended family. They, they come Marriage is ahead of that, but then the kid, now a lot of you are flipping that, right? You're putting your kids ahead of the health of your marriage. It's not the order scripturally that you need to have. The marriage is the higher priority. And here's what happens when you get the marriage in the right order. It blesses the kids more than you realize when you get the marriage there where it needs to be. Okay. That's better for the kids than getting them stuff and helping them out of trouble every time they mess up and all that. And them being able to see a good marriage is one of the best blessings you can give your kids. Okay? So, God, marriage, family, and then on my list I put work next, or career, work, or however you want to use that term there, whatever way you describe it, as the next thing in the order of priorities. Now, friends come in there too, so you got to decide: is that you know, where, where do the friends come in? I, I kind of included friends with family and friends there, but but you got to know that their their friends need your time and attention too. You got to invest in friendships if you want to have friends. That's got to be a priority too, right? So here here's my point: the next step in the exercise was the most important step. You take that list, and then you over here on the right side of that list, write down how much you invest in those things in time and resources of your life and see how well they match up, right? It's eye-opening when you really put it on paper. I say God's the number one priority, but how much am I investing in my relationship with God, with my time and my talents and my resources, right? How much am I giving to that out of my life? I say my marriage is the next important priority, but how much am I investing in my marriage with the time and resources that I have that God has allowed me to have? How much of that am I investing in my marriage? My kids. And it's the career taking a much bigger chunk of that than any of those other things. It's the job taking more of your life. When you say the other things are a higher priority, which thing is getting the most of you? See, Jesus spoke to that. And we already looked at this uh, in, in a couple of passages Uh, over the series we've been doing but let's go back to that sermon on the mount right in Matthew chapter 6 Jesus is teaching in a way he said not everybody's going to get this not everybody's going to understand it but this is the way the rhythm of life should be and in Matthew 6 verse 31 remember he said do not worry we did this on the message on, on worry being a bad habit right do not worry saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for who runs after those things the pagans run after these things right And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. So if your highest priority is God, and you know God knows you need that stuff, should it change the investment you're making one over the other? Yes. But then he adds this. Here's how you need to order your priorities. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. What's the number one priority? God, the things of God. Not just God, but he clarifies what he means by God being the priority. Seek. How does he say it? Listen. First, above everything else, his what? Kingdom. You know what his kingdom is on earth? The manifestation of his kingdom on earth is what? It's the church. It's the church. That's us, right? That's the people. That's what makes up the church. But it's the church. Seek first his kingdom, and then he adds, and his righteousness. Righteousness has a a bad connotation in a lot of people's minds, but righteousness just means that which is right with God. What's your highest priority? God and the things of God and the things of his church should be the highest priority of your life. But what do we give most time and attention and effort to? What we're going to eat, what we're going to wear, where we're going to live, right? All those things start making their way to the top. And what happens to God and the righteousness of God? It gets pushed down in the list. Are we still, if we write the list, we'll still put God number one because we know that's what it's supposed to be. But when we look at the other side of the list of what we're giving our time, our investment of life to, It's not God first, in most cases. It's all the other stuff first. You've heard me use this illustration before, but I like it. It's a good one. And I talk about top-button issues, right? You, You know, the idea is... If you button up a shirt, if you get the top button wrong, what happens to the other buttons? Are they lined up like they need to be? No, they're all out of line. But if you get the top button right, what happens? The next one's lined up right, and then the next one's lined up right. You see, if you get this most important one right, everything else starts lining up right in your life. But we focus on the other things and give more time and attention to those, and we don't miss, we miss the top one, and nothing gets lined up right, and we wonder why we're struggling in life, and why life isn't working well, and why we're having all the problems that we're having, when we didn't even get the first thing right, that needed to be right, seek first his kingdom, his kingdom is manifested through the church on the earth today. That's not all there is to God's kingdom, but on the earth, that is the manifestation of the kingdom of God. It's the church. Is that first in your priorities of your life? For most people, it's not. And doing what's right with God, is that the most important way you make your decisions? Is is this right with God? Is that the determining factor of how you're deciding to do other things? That should be number one. And then when we get that one right, he says, all this other stuff, it it lines up. It gets taken care of. It's God makes sure everything else is put into place that needs to be put into place in your life. He doesn't say you're going to get everything you want. He's not promising that. I, I really don't like these health and wealth preachers that tell you, if you get this one right, you're going to be wealthy and healthy your whole life. That's not what he's saying. He never says that anywhere in Scripture. He says everything else will be taken care of. Whatever else it is you got to deal with in life, it'll all be taken care of. When you get God in the first place, in the right place, the things of God in the right place in your life. So the first step is to order your priorities according to God's word. And only you can do that for you. Nobody else can do this for you. People try to force it on you. They'll try to make you make other things the priority, but you decide for yourself what the order of priorities are going to be for your life. Nobody else can make you do any order you don't want to do. You say, I didn't have any choice. Well, yes, you did. You always have a choice on what your priorities are going to be. Everybody gets to choose what the order is going to be. Are there consequences with the choices? Absolutely. Good and bad consequences come with all choices. But you get to make the choices yourself. So start with ordering the priorities of your life. The second step is this. Develop a healthy attitude toward rest. And that's harder than you think in our culture, to develop a healthy attitude toward rest. Because in our culture, rest and laziness are kind of combined together, right? That's, that's how people see that. If you're resting, you're being what? Lazy. And that's not necessarily true. It can be true, right? If you're always resting all the time, that's, that's lazy, right? But if you build in rest to the rhythm of your life the way God says to do it, that's not laziness. That's healthy. That's spiritual. That's a way to bless you and bless others. It's a good thing to develop a healthy attitude toward rest. Listen to how Jesus speaks of rest. Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you what? Does God want to give you anything bad? Would he intentionally give you something that's not good? No. And he says, I will give you what? Rest. Well, it's a good thing then, because Jesus is the one giving it to us. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find what? Rest for your what? Souls. You see, rest is more than just a physical thing. It's also a mental, psychological, spiritual thing. It's good for the soul to have the rest that God wants you to have. We need to have rest as a part of the rhythm of life. I love one of my favorite encounters Jesus had with His disciples. It's recorded in Luke 8 uh, there, and Luke's Gospel, verse 23. Uh, He and His disciples are out on a boat, right? I mean, the disciples, some of them had been fishermen, and they had a boat, and they could go out on the lake, and they knew how to navigate. They knew how to to sail. They knew how to do all of that. And so, they're out on this boat, and Jesus decides to do what? He takes a nap. Listen to the encounter. As they sailed, speaking of Jesus, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped, and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Then he asked this question, where is your faith? In fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. Maybe you've seen the meme or the t-shirt, Jesus took naps, be like Jesus. (laughs) Jesus took naps. When you read the context of what happened here, it's the middle of the day. And what was Jesus doing? Resting, taking a nap. He had worked hard already that day. He had worked hard late into the night the night before. But what did he do in the middle of the day? He took a nap. He rested. Man, I kick myself every time I think about as a kid how much I resisted taking naps. I wish some of you would come into my office one day and say, Randy, take a nap. Lights out. Yeah, lights out. I don't want to hear anything out of you. I would welcome it today, right? Right? And I may not be able to do it in the middle of the work day like that. Sometimes, though, you can, though. Maybe there is a way for you to have a break where you could get a nap. But if you can't do it then, the idea is make sure you build it into the rhythm of your life where you're getting the rest that you need to get. Jesus understood something. Jesus could only do all that he was here to do in the short time he had to do it if he was rested. He had to be well-rested to do everything the father sent him here to do because he was in the flesh like us and the flesh gets tired and it wears down and when you get tired and you're not getting the rest you need you're not eating like you need you're not resting like you need to you get irritable and you don't, you're not functioning at your peak anymore And you're snapping at people you wouldn't normally snap at. And you're being rude when you wouldn't normally be rude. And and you're missing things that you wouldn't normally miss. And it's just because you're so tired. And Jesus didn't want to function at that level. He wanted to function at the best level with the time that he had. Which meant that he had to get what? Rest built into his rhythm, to his schedule of what he was trying to do. Jesus took naps. Let's be more like Jesus So let's get a better attitude toward rest. The third thing is this. You've got to learn to confront your fears. Confront your fears. Another great teaching of Jesus is found in Luke 12, verse 15. He said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of what? Greed. And he put this statement with that. He said, life does not consist in what? In the abundance of your possessions. You see, as soon as you forget that, as soon as you don't understand that, then you start working out of fear. That's now your motivation for working. Because you think the only way to have a successful life is to have what? The abundance of your possessions. And that your life is all about the abundance. Of your possessions. So now the pressure's on. What do you have to get? The abundance of your possessions. That's what you're living for, because that's what life's about for you. It's the abundance of your possessions. And if it's about the abundance of your possessions, it doesn't matter if your marriage suffers. It doesn't matter if your kids don't ever see you. It doesn't matter about any of that if life is really about the abundance of your possessions. It doesn't matter if you ever serve at church because life is about the abundance of your possessions. So anything you sacrifice to get that, that's what life's about. And that's why you justify the sacrifice to get the stuff. Because you believe the lie of Satan that that's what your life is all about. That's how you measure your life and the success of your life. is by the abundance of your possessions. It's true, that's how the world measures life. You can be the worst person in the world, but if you have a lot of money, people will listen to you. You could be the dumbest person in the world, but if you have a lot of money, people will listen to you. You will get respect. You will get honor because of the abundance of your possessions. So we see that and we think that must be what life is all about. And if this is all there was to life, you might be having an argument there. But everything in this world is what? It's temporary. Every bit of it. And no matter how much of it you get, what's going to happen to it? It's going to be gone. You You can't take it with you, and it will eventually just be destroyed. What a lot of people sacrifice their families to get is now rusting and rotting in the garbage dump down the road. And you gave up so much to get that stuff. So, so many things that were really more important than that stuff. So we've got to confront the fear, this idea that life is about that. Because if we think that's what life is about, we'll always be scared of losing our job or, or getting a pay cut or, or not being able to afford that or not being able to make the payments. And that fear drives you and me to make decisions that are totally unhealthy where we over-obligate ourselves and we go into so much debt that not only are we killing ourselves to get the stuff, but we no longer have time or the ability to enjoy it after we get it. You're living in the nicest house you ever lived in, but you're hardly ever there and you never enjoy being there because the payment is killing you. Right? Right? You're driving that car, but you can hardly put gas in it because you maxed out your credit card, right? It looks successful, but it's not because life does not consist in the what? Abundance of your possessions. And when you believe that lie, it causes you to react out of fear. And in fear, in order to look good, you'll do stuff you should never do to make yourself look like you're successful. Like you got your life together. Like everything's good. You see, fear is a terrible motivator for life. And it's not just fear of not looking successful. You need to work hard, but you don't need to work scared. You need to have faith. Remember what Jesus said to them when he, they woke them up scared to death? Oh, you of little what? Faith. Trust God. Trust that he knows best. Trust that he's got you. Don't live in fear. Live in faith in God. Does that mean you shouldn't try to work hard, make good investments, you know, try to advance at work? No. It just means you shouldn't be driven by fear to do those things. Because you trust God. That even if you didn't get the promotion or you did lose the job, God's still got a plan. He's still got you. You don't have to live in fear when you know you can have faith in God. And it's not just fear in those areas. It's also this other fear that a lot of Christ followers have. And that's fear of not being saved. (laughs) You're working hard as a Christian and you're trying to do all these works, but you're doing it out of the wrong motivation. You're doing it out of the motivation. I'm scared, I won't be saved, so I gotta be make God happy and I gotta make God pleased with me. So I'm gonna do all this stuff so God will be happy with me and let me into heaven. We're trying to work our way in to heaven. I hate to tell you this, but there's not an amount of work you could ever do that would get you into heaven. There's not a, a list of good works you could accomplish before you die that will award you a key into heaven. It does not exist. You see, that work's already been done. It's finished. It's over with. It was accomplished on the cross. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus has earned, has paid for, in full, your salvation. You, don't, you can't do anything else for your salvation. Nothing. I love what he said in... In Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. See, here's the thing. When you order your priorities, you don't put God first because you think you've got to earn your way into heaven. You put God first because you love God. That's why you put God first. You're so grateful for what he's done for you. And you so much just want to honor him with your life that you'll gladly serve God, not out of fear, but out of gratitude and love. And that kind of service accomplishes a whole lot more than doing it out of fear. That kind of service has much more impact than just working out of fear that you might not be saved. I'm going to do it because I sure don't want to burn in hell, right? So I'm going to do this and do that. How about I'm going to do this because God has been so gracious to me and I love him and I just want to honor him with my life. Isn't that different? You see, that's the way he wants us to serve him. That's what he's looking for. He wants our hearts. He's not asking us to earn our way into heaven because we couldn't do that anyway. And the final thing, the fourth one is this. Allow for some joy in your life. allow for joy if you've been around Lakeshore very long you know I love humor and I love to have fun and we do fun things here and have a good time and we tell jokes we, you see I heard this years ago and I thought it was really good he says it amazes me how most people in the church look like they were baptized in pickle juice <laughs> you know what I was talking about they walk around all stern and serious and drawn up and nobody should smile or have fun or laugh or anything. You, you know what it used to be like if you were raised in church, maybe? You maybe were raised in a church where you had to just sit still and not make any noise, and your mom had that rat tail comb she'd pop you with if you. Right? Yeah. Now I'm not all against that, but I am <laughs> I am saying that of all the lifestyles in the world, the one that should have built into it the most joy and the most fun should be the Christian life. We have more reason for it than anybody else. We should have joy as Christians. And the Scripture teaches this. Listen to me. The Bible says that the Creator God we talked about, who created us in His image and who rested on the seventh day, said everything He made, He made for our enjoyment. Did you catch that? He says that in the Bible. He made this world for our enjoyment. Now, He knows better how to enjoy it than we do. He knows better what boundaries we need to put around that so that it will bring joy to us. So, so within those boundaries, God designed and created every Everything in creation for our enjoyment. And didn't He create a magnificent world? Everything we need for life and for enjoyment, He put here for us. Everything. Now we messed it up. We keep messing it up. We keep getting out of the boundaries that He set. But within those boundaries, there's great joy in life. He wants us to enjoy it. I love this teaching of Scripture in Ecclesiastes 8. The author says this in verse 15. So I commend which means kind of like I recommend this to you, the enjoyment of life, because there's nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. The joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life God has given them under the sun. I want you to understand the combination of what he's saying here. He's saying, I'm recommending to you that you enjoy life, that you eat and you drink and you be glad and you have joy because here's what will happen. If you build that into the rhythm of your life, that joy will go with you into your work. He's not saying don't work and just go out there and party all the time. He's saying if you put joy into your life, that will carry over into your work life too. You'll be more joyful at work. You'll have a better attitude at work. You'll be better—a uh, better friend, a better coworker at work—because of the joy that you have in your life will be seen at your workplace too. And what a better witness that is at work than the grumbling and the complaining most of us are doing at work all the time, even as Christ followers. You see the difference, man. If we build this into life the way God designed it to be, then even our work gets better. Everything about our lives gets better. It blesses the rest of life. In the Old Testament, one of my favorite books is Nehemiah. You might know that because I preached through it several times over the years. Uh, it's just such a great book about doing, uh, God, uh, responding to God's call in your life. God called Nehemiah to go and help His people rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. They had been exiled from Jerusalem. They had been conquered by a foreign enemy. And now they have the opportunity to go back, but they need to rebuild that wall. And in Nehemiah, the first seven chapters there, it talks about how they got that project done. They divided up into teams. And people that had never done manual labor before were put on a team, and they were laying block and and helping build a wall and do all that stuff. And and man, at first it was so exciting, they were so happy to be doing the work. But about halfway through the project what happens if you're doing a project at home about halfway through what happens it's a mess and you're tired and you don't want to get up and go back at it the next day right you just you know the middle of the project is the hardest part of the project because even though you've made some progress you're not nearly finished yet and you're tired now and you can't do any project without making a mess, right? You know, especially if you're trying to live in your house while you're working on a project in your house. It's it's messy, it's, it's just bad. Right? So they're trying to live in the city while they're rebuilding the wall and everything's a mess and they're having to walk around rubble the whole time while they're trying to get their work done. And and it's hard work, and some of them have never done that kind of physical labor before. But finally, at the end of chapter 8, they've completed the wall, and they've got all this done. At the end, uh, at the end of chapter 7, they've got it all done, and, and they're, they're going to celebrate completing the work. They want to have some fun. But before they have the celebration, Nehemiah calls them all together, and he has the priest come up to read to them from the law of God because they're going to resettle Jerusalem. They're going to restart their new life there. And he said, I want you to start by doing it the way God wants you to do it. And as the priest reads from the law of God, the people started weeping. Just tears of sorrow and regret. You know why? They realized that the reason they were exiled And the reason their city was in ruins and the reason they suffered exile and and slavery was because of their rebellion and their sinfulness. And now they, they see they were way outside of God's will and they're being reminded of it. And so they're weeping as they hear the law read. But here's what Nehemiah said in verse 10. Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to the Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your what? What's your strength? The joy of your Lord. They're hearing God's law, and they're knowing they were outside of God's will, and they're knowing they need to repent and turn back to God. And Nehemiah says, hey, that's a good thing. And and it's something you ought to be rejoicing about. That God's given you this chance and you have the opportunity to start again and it's all going to be better than it was before. So go eat and drink and celebrate. And he says, This day is holy to the Lord. And what we've done and our way of thinking has made holy days like they can't be fun. They have to be solemn, they have to be sad, they have to be, you know, just awful. You know, we'll go through church and we'll sit through it, but we don't like it. That little preacher goes way too long. (laughs) But he says, here's what I want you to do on a holy day. Celebrate and be glad and praise your God. It should be a great, fun thing, celebrating thing. That's what a holy day is, where God is honored by your joy. And here's the thing, that joy that you honor God with gives you your what? Strength to live the life God has called you to live. There's much greater strength in joy than there is in sadness. Sadness depletes your strength, joy invigorates your life. He said, The joy of the Lord is your strength. So enjoy God's blessings, praise God for the blessings, make it a celebration. In Psalm 51, the psalmist has, failed miserably, he sinned greatly, and he knows it. And he's gone before God already, and he's confessed his sin. And he's asked for grace and mercy and forgiveness. And then in verse 12, he continues his request to God this way. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to do what? sustain. Let's pray together. Father, Father, today we come before you repenting of the sin of our lives. Father, having the joy of our salvation doesn't mean we we aren't repented. It doesn't mean we aren't sorry for our sins. So, Father, we confess them and we ask for grace and mercy and forgiveness. But we don't stop there, Father. We're asking you today to restore to us the joy of your salvation. Cause we need to be invigorated again we need to be strengthened again we need to be empowered again to go out and live with that joy with that celebration as a way of life we need to build into our lives that rhythm of life that you called us to with rest and invigorating joy in our lives so that we have the energy to work hard but be a good example while we do it to to honor our our marriages and still have joy in the marriage and to, and to raise our kids with the joy of our salvation and they see that and they're drawn to it, and they want it for their lives, Father, restore to us the joy of the greatest gift ever given, salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ, and what He did for us on the cross. If there's anybody here today who, who has not yet experienced that joy, I pray that today would be the day that they would come confessing Jesus as Lord and Savior, and they would come into the joy of knowing what you've done for them and accepting that gift that you provide for them in Jesus. May they accept Him and follow after Him as the Lord and Savior of their lives. If there's anybody here that needs a church home or church family to be connected to and a part of, to celebrate together with and to invigorate and encourage each other with the joy that you give them, I pray that they would, they would come to make sure their church home, whatever the need is, Father. As we come to this time in our service, I pray that your Spirit would prompt us to take the steps we need to take to honor you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.